you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. We're going to be looking today at verses 1 to 9. While you are finding that, um, I'm going to read uh, off some would be, I guess, more modern proverbs. Uh, they might be considered English proverbs. Um, I think these are fairly well known, so I'm going to start them and see if you can finish them. So feel free to shout it out. Um, first one is, if at first you don't succeed, try, try again. Meaning successful people are going to fail along the way, but they don't give up. Um, and any successful person will tell you I probably failed more often than I succeeded. Um, two wrongs don't make a right. When someone has done something bad to you, getting revenge is just going to make things worse. Um, the early bird gets up first, is that what you said? <laughs> um, Perhaps that's another version of it. Um, <laughs> uh, the early bird catches the worm or gets the worm. Uh, so you wake up early and start your work day early, and um, you'll be more successful. Um, you know, the bird that gets up late gets out there, and the food's gone. So actions speak louder than words. Just saying you'll do something doesn't mean much. Actually, doing it is much harder and more meaningful. Um, now, before you go to the next, oh wait, I don't have them up there. Before I mention the next one, though, um, the next one is the one I really want to focus on this morning. But these are all things that people have kind of over time decided, you know, this is a good thing to live by. This is a good um, uh, piece of advice to give to people. Um, the next one is one that I think works actually the way it's written and in reverse as well. One rotten apple spoils the whole bunch. Okay, now I asked one of my kids th uh, yesterday if they had heard that or if they knew what it meant. And, and so I, I'm wondering, like, any, any younger people, younger than my generation, people don't really use these that much anymore. I heard them growing up, but... Anybody who's younger than me, do you, did you know any of those? Have you ever heard it? I see heads shaking no. I see hands halfway raised up. So, um, One rotten apple spoils the bunch. Hanging out with a person of bad character is going to rub off on you. Well, that one in particular is one that I think the reverse of that works very well, and I think it's actually one of the best pieces of advice, pieces of advice that I could give somebody. It's a lesson I learned in my internship when I was finishing up my college studies. Um, I learned that if you want to know the Lord, if you want to grow in your walk with Christ and become more intimate with him, um, this is what I learned. Find people who love the Lord with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. People who want to live in such a way that draws them closer to Jesus. And hang out with those people as much as possible. 
because just as a rotten apple can spoil the things that are around or bad character can rub off on the people around them, the opposite is true. People who have Christ-like character, you spend time with them, spend as much time with them as possible, they will rub off on you. You will find yourselves, you will find yourself um, learning from them. It's almost, it's kind of like training for your walk with Christ. Um, they're, the things that you might be weak in, that they're strong in, that begins to become something God matures you in and grows you in. And so, one of the things that we, that I hear a lot from people when we talk about evangelism or we talk about defending our faith or whatever, one of the things I hear a lot is I don't, I don't know how to do it or I don't think that I'm smart enough to do it or I don't think I have the answers that I need to give. I don't know that I know what they're going to throw at me and so I'm nervous because I don't want them to ask me something or, or you know, make a criticism of my faith that I can't answer. And so today we're going to hang out with Paul. We're going to learn how he shares the gospel because this text, when he comes to Thessalonica, is one where there are some pretty basic things that he does that I think are basic things we can put into practice to help us know how to share the gospel with people. So my prayer is that Paul's approach to witnessing for Christ will rub off on us this morning and we'll have a little better understanding and maybe some more confidence about going into it. So, Acts chapter 17, verses 1 to 9. If you have your Bibles open will you, and you're capable, will you please stand to honor God as we read his word? All right, so they've just come from Philippi where they were beaten and imprisoned. Um, unlawfully, and then they make their way to Thessalonica. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Let's pray. Father, as we look at this text and we see what Paul does here when he gets to Thessalonica, um, I just pray, Lord, that we would have a better understanding um, of his approach to witnessing, his approach to sharing the gospel, dealing with 
differing points of view, differing religious thoughts, because he's in a culture where there's a lot of idolatry. Um, we live in a similar culture. There's a lot of things that people worship. Some, some worship things that, uh, that aren't, can't be seen, and some worship things that can be seen, much like the Roman world. Um, but we pray, Lord, that we would, you would equip us to take the truth out, to share the gospel with those who need to hear it, who are desperate to hear it. Um, give us confidence today as we look at Paul's approach so that we can have um, we can have success in your eyes in sharing the gospel with our culture. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. We're going to first look at some background of Thessalonica. Um, it's always just a good idea to figure out who Paul's talking to. So just some uh, background on the culture and stuff. Thessalonica was about 90 to 100 miles from Philippi, which is where they came from. Um, that's a long trek after being beaten. Um, and Paul, later we will talk about, Paul talks about how hard that, that uh, persecution was in Philippi. And then he makes a trek that's 90 to 100 miles away. Um, Thessalonica, at times in history, they've dropped the T-H-E-S, and it's been called, I don't know how you pronounce this, Solonica, Solonica, um, but it's, it, it's been known by both those names throughout history. Um, it is the capital of that particular province of Macedonia, so it's a pretty important city. It's the largest and the most prosperous city um, in that uh, province of Macedonia. Uh, it was prosperous because it was a commercial center. Um, it was a place where people came from all over the world to do business. And um, one of the things that made it prosperous was that it commanded trade that was done by sea and by uh, land in that part of the world. It commanded the trade uh, that was done by sea across the Aegean see um do we have can you i don't know if it's before this or after but can you go to the map real quickly all right so thessalonica is up here in the corner and the the aegean sea here any trade that took place across there or through there uh thessalonica was the was the city that was basically controlling that and then there is it's not on this map but if you follow thessalonica up to philippi um, and then if you were to continue on land through the region of Thrace, all the way over to where it meets Bithynia, there was a road called the Via Ignatia. It was a, one, of the two, one of the two major Roman roads that they built that went all the way across the Roman Empire. So any trade that took place across the sea or on that roadway, Thessalonica was in control of that. So it was a really prosperous city because of those, those things. Um, basically, that was kind of the idea of Israel. God put them in a place where 
Um, that's way down here. But God put them in a place where all the major roads went through so that they could influence people from all over the world. And Thessalonica is an influential city, uh, much in the same way. All right, so that's some of the background. Now, Paul doesn't stop in the two small cities before he, from between Philippi and Thessalonica. There are these two small cities that he goes through. He doesn't stop there. Uh, he may have had to spend the night there, but he doesn't stop and spend any time there. And I think because Paul's typical practice is to get to the urban centers, the, the metropolitan centers where there's a bigger chance for influencing people with the gospel. And so I think he wanted to go from Philippi, which was a leading city in Macedonia, to Thessalonica, which was um, the, the main uh, capital, basically, of the province. Now, he, I said that he's coming off of this difficult persecution in Philippi in First Thessalonians, when he, later on, when he writes the church the first time in Thessalonica, First Thessalonians 2.2, 2, Paul tells the Thessalonians that the suffering in Philippi was very difficult, but it was only because God gave them the strength and the energy to keep, continue on that he was able to come to Thessalonica and share the gospel with them. And so he's coming, as he's approaching these people in this, in, on this j- missionary journey, he's coming um, running on fumes, but being fueled by the Holy Spirit to, to do the work of ministry. And we don't know how long he stayed there, but he stayed there for a while. Um, when he writes the church in Philippi, Phil- Philippians 4.16, he talks about how when he was in Thessalonica, they sent him aid more than once. So... I don't know if that's twice or five times, but he was there for at least three weeks because on three Sabbaths he reasoned with them, um, but he most likely stayed a while longer and really invested in this city. So that's kind of what, just some background on the people and the situation that Paul is in as he is taking the gospel to a new place. Um, As we move to point number two, Um, Let's look at Paul's approach, his apologetic approach, when he's in Thessalonica. And I want to look at this specifically because we see different approaches that Paul takes at times. This one in particular is is one that has some, I think, good principles as we think about going out and sharing the gospel with people in our circle of interaction um, in our lives. The first thing is that his message from the most part, at least in the section that we're looking at, is to the Jews. He reasons with them, it says, for three Sabbaths. So for three Sabbaths in a row, he's basically spending time in the synagogue speaking to Jews. And his message to them is that the Messiah that they had been anticipating, hoping for, his message was that the, the Messiah had to suffer, die, and rise from the dead. That's not a message that, that's not a message that would be received well from um, a serious, hardcore Jew because in their mind, the Messiah was coming to conquer. Um, And so Paul Paul is spending time with them trying to get them to understand that their understanding of the Messiah was off. 
Now, there are three words that Luke uses that I did just a little bit of a study on uh, the way that they're used, not just here, but in other places in the New Testament. And I want to draw some attention to those. Uh, So we're just going to break them down a little bit so that we have a better understanding of what Paul is doing here. The first thing in verse 2, it says that... um, in, it's, we're looking at verses 2 and 3. Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. So the first thing I want to look at is this word that Luke uses that's translated reasoned. Now, this is a Greek word because he's writing in Greek, so we don't see this word, specific word, in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, it's got different levels of intensity that it can represent. So it can be as high intensity, a high level of intensity as arguing or fighting with, with your words. You could be, you know, you could be talking about something and it could escalate to yelling and fighting with each other. It could be a lesser intense level um, which would be more like to debate somebody. You know, you, you, it is possible to debate and be civil. We don't see it on Facebook often, but it is possible to debate someone and actually still be friends or be kind to each other. So the middle level is, uh, it can represent the idea of debating. And then an even lesser intensity is it can represent just a discussion, to discuss something. So arguing or fighting with your words or debating or discussing. Now, I doubt Paul was yelling and fighting with the Jews in the synagogue in Thessalonica. Um, I think the key to understanding Paul's approach with this specific word that Luke uses is that the especially the two lesser intensity representations, debating and discussing. Debating and discussing requires people on both sides to be able to talk and share their point of view. And so I think the key to understanding Paul's approach as he was with them in the synagogue on those Sabbath days was allowing them to interact with him, allowing them to discuss the subject, ask questions. Uh, If they had a different point of view, maybe give a defense of their point of view. And Paul would have been, and Paul is so good that he doesn't fear somebody saying, I don't don't agree with you. I I don't think you're right. Here's why I think you're wrong. Paul, Paul doesn't fear that stuff because he knows he has the truth. And so, as he's interacting, as he's allowing them to take part in the discussion um, or a debate, defending their point of view, um, Paul would have then been able to uh, have an opportunity to share back, so back and forth. So he reasoned with them. He, he, he tried, to, tried to get to a point where let's sit down and look at the Old Testament scriptures logically. Okay, let's lay it out and, and logically. And laying it out is actually... Um, one of the other words we're going to look at, it's the third word we're going to look at. Um, the second one we're going to look at is the word explaining. He says that 
He reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. This word um, carries an idea of like opening up an understanding. And so um, the, the concept that when Jesus is on the road to Emmaus with the two disciples who were distraught because he was crucified and then they didn't understand what was going on because he was not in the tomb on that third day. Jesus is walking with them. Um, it carries this idea of how Jesus, uh, he, he opened up the scriptures for them to be able to, to see and understand a little bit better. So the idea is, it's a word that, uh, it's, it, it's representing something that's not understood before, but now it is clearly understandable. And so Paul is reasoning with them, discussing, debating, and as he is giving his point of view, he's opening up the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, for them to understand better. And then the third word that Luke uses here is proving. He was reasoning with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. This word that Luke uses here carries the idea of setting evidence out, like laying it out for people to see. Um, so I, I don't know how Paul did this in particular. Um, I don't know if he just said, here's all the stuff that I'm building up to, and here, here, let me lay it all out for you now. Or if he said, here's what, the old, here's what the Old Testament prophets prophesied. This is how it's fulfilled in Jesus. This prophet said this would take place. This is how it was fulfilled in Jesus. Um, I don't know exactly how he did that, but he took what he had been discussing with them, understanding what their point of view. He began to open up the Old Testament scriptures so that there was a better explanation, and then he laid out all of how Christ is the fulfillment of those Old Testament scriptures that now they have a better understanding as they are pointing forward to the Messiah. So this kind of a process, and especially because it's represented over the course of three Sabbath days, um, this kind of a process is a, it's a process. You, you don't have one discussion with somebody and either convince them or have them walk away angry at you. You take time and you invest in them and you, you build over time through your discussion as you are pointing them to the truth and pointing them to the truth and pointing them to the truth and then show them how Jesus is the fulfillment of that. So it's a process. It, this was a typical approach actually to reaching Jews with the gospel um, because we see this not just in Paul, but we see this actually in Jesus's ministry as he interacts with the Jews of his day. Jesus often spoke of the Old Testament scriptures that were foretelling the coming of the Messiah. And he was not shy about letting people know that he fulfilled that, that that comes to fruition and fulfillment in him. Um, and one of the things that Jesus pushed and pushed and pushed was that th this understanding that the Messiah is going to come and be a conquering king in terms of establishing Israel as another world power again, um, 
he had to dispel that. And so he pointed back to the prophets as the prophets talked about the Messiah coming to suffer. Uh, Isaiah 52 and 53 is one of the most graphic uh, places in the, in the scriptures that foretell the great suffering that the Messiah would, do, would go through when he got here. When Jesus was speaking with those two guys on the road to Emmaus, he actually rebuked them for not believing what the prophets had spoken about when they stated that the Christ was going to, that the Christ had to suffer before he could enter his glory, which is what Paul is trying to convince the people in Thessalonica. It was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and to die and then to rise from the dead. So that that's, that's kind of an approach that Jesus took, that Paul takes. Um, that's a hard message. The message of the gospel is not an easy message necessarily to grasp. And it was hard for the Jews, even though God had been preparing them with prophets throughout the centuries, because the idea that the Messiah was going to come as a servant, he was going to come and lay down his life and suffer and die, that was, that was a stumbling block to them. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, when he writes the church in Corinth, he says in uh, chapter 1, verse 23, he says, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. The Jews had a hard time accepting that message, and the Gentiles just think it makes no sense. So it's a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but Paul knows that you can't present the gospel without demonstrating Christ crucified for the sins of the whole world. All right, so let's look at some application as we think about going out ourselves to share the gospel with people who need to know it. Uh, Let me just ask you this too. Um, If you could show with the by raising your hand, how many of you have in your family or in your circle of friends or in your circle of coworkers or um, if you're younger at your school, how many of you have someone that you know well that is not a Christian? I think every hand went up or close to. I didn't count everybody, but... Um, I firmly believe that God puts us in those circles of influence for a reason. Um, We saw how the Holy Spirit is a master strategist and how Paul had wanted to go into Asia, but the Holy Spirit said no. Wanted to go to Bithynia then, and the Holy Spirit said no, and it forced him to go in between those two where he received a vision that, he needed to go to Macedonia to share the gospel. And there was strategy behind that. There was a purpose that the Holy Spirit had in that. I fully believe that um, every circle of friends or people that you hang out with or interact with, maybe it's not, maybe they're not friends necessarily. Maybe it's your male person or maybe it's um, your, the people that pick up your trash or the people that you see on a regular basis. Maybe it's neighbors. But I I firmly believe that God places us in those in order to influence those people as much as we can with the gospel. Now, not every one of them is going to come to know Christ and surrender to him. But 
I think God uses us specifically in those places to uh, bear witness to him. So you've got them all around you. You've probably got, you probably have at least one non-believer that you know pretty well in every circle that you interact with it throughout your week. So if you're going to share the gospel with them and you are called to share the gospel with them, um, let's look at what we can learn from Paul on how to do that because it can be a scary thing, especially if you're somebody who doesn't like to talk um, and doesn't, if you're a person that doesn't like confrontation, it can be a scary thing. But let's look at what Paul does and, I, and some things that I think we can take away today that are, that are important first steps. The first thing is that you need to know the viewpoints of those who oppose Christianity. We need to know before, I mean, not that you can't, not that you can't enter into a conversation before you know this, but we need to take some time and invest in a little bit of study to find out what, what are the things that people believe that cause them to be so opposed to Christianity. Um, and we will, in just a minute, get into some things that, some resources that I think would be helpful. But it could be as simple as asking your, like if you're close enough to the person, you could just ask them, so I know that you don't believe what I believe. Can you just tell me what is the thing that makes you opposed to that? Um, I, I know someone who asked that of a family member that just were pretty straight out. What, you know, what, what is it about you and people of your generation that reject this. So you, you could just ask them, or you could do a little bit of study, uh, which I'll share some resources in just a minute. But um, we, need to, we need to have some kind of an understanding of what we're going up against when, so we can prepare to share the gospel. The second thing is practice spiritual disciplines. And so... Um, in um, do we have that or did I okay uh, practice spiritual disciplines so I'm going to mention a, a few different things here but the first one spiritual disciplines are like prayer uh, scripture study meditation on scripture that kind of stuff so the first thing we need to be praying ahead of time we would never go into a battle like a physical battle without training you should never should never enter your day without spending some time in prayer to get prepared for the day and what god may bring um same thing with sharing the gospel if you know you're going to be interacting with somebody that day at work or whatever that isn't a believer uh, spend some time before you get there praying for wisdom just praying for god to be to give you wisdom and to help you to know what to say and do and how to represent him well. Another spiritual discipline is studying scripture. Um, you, you can't share the gospel if you don't know God's word, if you don't know the gospel. So we need to daily be studying scripture, either reading it devotionally and just taking it into starter day or digging in and studying and start, you know, do word searches and read or word studies and 
read commentaries and that kind of stuff, but some form of taking in of scripture so that we're familiar with it. And the third spiritual discipline is um, you don't have to be a professional apologetic apologist. You don't have to get a master's degree in apologetics, but you should get a little bit of understanding of apologetics. And apologetics just means defending your faith. So that's that's not as hard as it sounds. Um, you can, there are, there are YouTube videos of Ravi Zacharias or Frank Turek or William Lane Craig or um, other people that are well-known people who do apologetic work. And so you could watch those, those videos. Um, you could get some books on it. Um, a book that uh, I've had to put on the back burner this summer, but I look forward to picking it back up soon because um, I'm about 60% through it. It was a book I used in class, uh, one of my classes called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist by Frank Turek and Norman Geisler. Um, reading something like that, um, Frank Turk has another book called Stealing from God about how people who don't believe in God have to steal things that can, uh, can only be of God in order to disprove him. And so reading stuff like that, listening to people who engage in conversations like this on university campuses and do question and answer formats and that kind of stuff, that will not only help you to know how to answer it, that will do the first thing. That'll help you understand what the viewpoints are. You'll see what people are saying in opposition to it, and then you can listen to how they respond um, and get some training in how to respond when your friends throw objections at you. So that's spiritual disciplines. The third thing, pray to identify the people with whom that you need to share the gospel. God has put you in those circles for a reason. He wants you to be a witness to him. Sometimes we know who those people are and sometimes we don't. I, I would probably be ashamed if, I, if God were to open my mind to understand all the people he brought across my path in life so that I could share the gospel and I missed the opportunity because I didn't even realize they needed it. Or I was so wrapped up in myself, I couldn't see beyond my own self to realize they were in great need. Pray that God would help you identify those people that he's specifically put in your circle of relationships so that you can influence them with the gospel. The fourth thing, pray to understand your audience. This is something that we see in Paul here and we see in other places with Paul. Um, When Paul was in Lystra, there was no synagogue there. Nobody spoke um, the common language of Greek or at least not well enough. So Paul actually had to figure out how to communicate with them in their own tongue. And so there was no basis that he could start with. He couldn't go back to the prophets and say, you know, remember the prophets said this, well, here's how it's fulfilled in Jesus. So that particular crowd of people, he had to go back further to something that he could connect with them. And so he took them back to creation. They could connect with them on everything that they saw around them in the world. And he, and he pointed to something that they could understand, and, he, and then he, from there, reasoned with them how there is a God who created everything they see and created them in particular. He approaches Thessalonica completely differently because 
for three Sabbaths, he goes into the synagogue with people who have an understanding of the Old Testament prophecies. And so he takes a different approach and he goes back to the prophets and he says, you know this, let me show you a better way of understanding it. And then let me show you how it's fulfilled in this man that I keep telling you about named Jesus. So a completely different approach. We need to be able to understand where our audience is at. It's hard, that's hard to figure out if it's, you know, the first time you met them or, or whatever. But if they're your, in your circle of friends that God has put you, you probably have an idea of where they're at. If you don't, pray for an understanding to be able to see, okay, where do I start with this particular person? Number five, pray for God to prepare the unbelieving heart. Paul is constantly in prayer, not just for the churches that he's established, but for their witness and for his own witness and for uh, God to use that witness to win people to Christ. We need to do the same thing. Pray for those people that you know are not believers. Pray that God would prepare their heart so that when he moves you to share the gospel, they're ready to hear it. Um. Now, in terms of this, when people hear apologetics, a lot of times they think arguing, debating, maybe very intensely. Um, but th- most of the time they think that that is, the goal of that is to win people to Christ. Um, I don't agree with that, and here's why. I don't think apologetics is an attempt to persuade people. I think apologetics, what we see in Paul, what we see in the early church fathers who had to really engage in apologetics is to um, give a, offer a full explanation. Because if the goal is to persuade them, then we will fail every time because we can't change anybody's heart. I think God calls us to give a full explanation so there's no misunderstanding of what the truth is and then we let God take care of changing their heart. So if you look at Paul, you look at the early church fathers, a lot of times what they did was rather than argue and try to drag them into it, they, their approach was, here's what you think you know about what I'm proclaiming. I'm going to make sure that you have a full understanding The early church in the first century, they thought that they were cannibals because they talked about eating the flesh and drinking the blood of Christ. They thought that there was incest being practiced because they called each other brothers and sisters and yet they talked about loving each other and they talked about greeting each other with kisses and stuff like that. And so there was a misunderstanding of some of the things that they believed. And so the early apologists would say, listen, if you... If you choose to follow Christ or not, I'm going to make sure that you make that decision based on an accurate and full understanding of truth. I don't want you to make that decision because of something that you misunderstand. And so an apologetic approach is more of, it's not so much the pressure of, we got to get these people to come to Christ. It's more, I want to make sure that you know the truth. And if you don't follow Christ, that's not on me. God will change your heart in due time or you will harden your heart against him. But my job is to just make sure that you are not misunderstanding something. 
Uh, Romans 10, 14 and 15. When we share that message, Paul says this, how will they call on him whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Our call is just to get the message to them and then trust God to do the work that only God can do. uh, Six, trust God for growth and success and failure. God's going to grow you through the times of being successful and the times of of failing, and you are going to fail at times, and that's okay. Trust that God will grow you in both of those so that when you do it the next time, you've learned something and you're a little more effective. Now, before you bring up this last one, let me just say this. All of these, we can be, we can be weak in any of these and God can make up for that. So you don't have to be perfect. These are guidelines. These are things that are good to know, do and practice. But you can fall short in some of these or not be strong in some of these, and it's okay. God will make up for that. This last one is the most important point. This last one, if it's not done, then evangelism, witnessing, apologetics uh, crumbles. So this one you have to make sure you do. Always take them back to the cross. If you forget the cross and the sacrifice and the resurrection, you've lost the message of the gospel. So these other ones, God can, God can make up for where you're not strong. But you cannot witness without bringing them to the cross. And that's what Paul does every time. Paul, every single time, brings them to the sacrifice that Christ made for, their sin, for the sins of the world. And for the and to the resurrection, because through the resurrection he conquered sin and death. So always take them back to the cross. Let's pray. God, we we thank you that you trust us and that you want us to be a part of sharing the gospel. We thank you for the circles of relationships you've put us in. Help us, Lord, to um, become more and more desirous of sharing that message. Let us burden, let, have a burden for the people. Let us hurt for them because they don't know Christ. Let us be people of compassion that want to throw a lifeline to them so that they... Um, in the midst of drowning, have hope and will come to know you and come to have life in you. Um, So these are some practical things that we can do, God. But I pray that you would put in us what we can't do, put in us a burning desire to offer that message to people, to give them hope. And when we do that, um, Help us to trust you to bring in the harvest. In Jesus' name, amen.